Hello there, and welcome to a Dungeons and Dragons role-playing podcast. My name is Stacy, and I'm the DM. So come with me and my good friend Mick. Join us in our weekly discussion about our campaign. Listen to our successes and failures while trying to flex our role-playing muscle. The funny bits, the dumb bits, and the all-round good time that comes with this great activity. The cast is an Asmar warlock named Elbrum, whose pixie familiar, Sil, can't remember the name of his patron. An elf-marked wizard named Calidus Magnus Lunior, who misses his cobalt slave. An old cleric, Oraki, who often drops her backpack. And I'm pleased to introduce the human paladin, Kaelin Vendris, crossing the Middle Sea from Caplion. The campaign setting is the Southlands from Cobalt Press. We are using the D&D 5e rule set, and we game using the Fantasy Grounds virtual tabletop. So that's the cast. That's the campaign. Now, good people, welcome to the show. In this episode, I am chatting with a special guest, Jacob, who plays the charming Oraki. In the meantime, Mick is MIA, but don't you worry, he'll be back. So, let's head back into Anuasir's Pyramid. The Grey Company faces massive golden doors with an array of keyholes made from exotic metals. It has got to be lockpick time. And then... Hell's bells, that wasn't smart. Meanwhile, our wizard Calidus takes a stroll down a dark corridor, and he trips another trap. The Grey Company finds another massive door, this one onyx and as ugly as sin, shaped as the head of an anglerfish. A large mural tells the tale of a would-be god-king wearing a fish-head mask. Within the hieroglyphs, a strange symbol burns into Kalen's mind. Big eyes. Sil whispers in Elbrum's ear, and he finally starts to see what's been calling him. Now tell me, good people, where is the imaginary line between a party running around like a headless chicken and a GM proffering that one last ever so important skill check. The oppressive and debilitating air drops as the large obelisk rotates down into the floor. Ah, how good it is to hear again. Mithril, adamantine, gold, stars, moon, sun, puzzle solved, and inner sanctum revealed. What in the? Lush vegetation? A gazebo? Do you want to know more? Then sit back, stay tuned, and enjoy. Today I'm here with a special guest. His name is Jacob. He plays Oraki in our sessions. And yes, we are going to be reviewing our last session, which was a very, very interesting one. So Hello, Jacob. Glad to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. So I will just start out by giving my little bit of 
what I've seen happening last week, and you can feel free to interrupt and add your two bits, and we'll see where things go. Sure. So, started out with you guys having been in the hallway where Calidus had just triggered a pressure plate trap and released a juggernaut statue that came tumbling down the hallway after you guys. Yeah. And thankfully, you guys were... The way you guys had come through this is you guys came through the back way of, of these tunnels. So you were able to uh, just basically retrace your steps back down the hallway and go through the door. If you guys had not come through the way you guys did through the back entrance, which was the trap door that led up to the upper level, you guys would have had eventually had to have come through this way. And if you came through this way and triggered that trap and you went to approach the door at the end, you would have found that the door would have been locked. And it would, it's locked from one side, but not locked from the other side. So it was it was kind of silly. I mean, mm-hmm. you guys could easily outrun the juggernaut, and, and that's what you guys did, and you shut the door, and, and then the juggernaut eventually just returned it. And, and after that, you guys went through the hallway to continue the exploration. And I had fun at this point because I'd been thinking quite a bit about introducing some stuff, and I'd been wondering when and how to do it. And it became... With the last session before that, I started to hint at something that was going on with Elbrum and him being able to see something from the corner of his yeah. eye. And his being able to see something coincided with something that was going to happen with you guys. So when you guys came down to this hallway, and I was really waiting for you guys to get down to this hallway because this hallway was a mass of hieroglyphics that were telling a story. And it seemed like the perfect place to all of a sudden have you guys... Something interesting happened to uh, each of your characters. So. Yeah. What happened? Well, you forgot a room. <laughs> you forgot a little tiny room with some sarcophagi, which is important. And the reason I remember that room is because for some reason, we opened one of the two closed sarcophagi, which I find hilarious. <laughs> yeah, that, that was It's a little bad. tiny was... room. But then, yes, the... there's the, uh, what is the official name? Is it a cyclorama? So, some panorama? Um, some big circle room. That was a beautiful room. Yep. And, yep. Um, yep. Dagobah, I'll give you some some props there, some credit, because you described it very well. Um, so this was the, I would, I want to say that this was the cycle uh, and the birth of Cabal. Yep. So the birth of Cabal to become a, what was in, in Southlands is referred to as God Kings or Goddess Queens. Yep. And so that, that's actually a little bit of common knowledge. There's a few of them that still are out and about. I, and I, to be honest, without reading the campaign setting, I can't remember all of their names. I do know that in Perbastet, you've got Queen Meshkenet, and Queen Meshkenet is a goddess queen. So she's tens of thousands of years old. Mm. And some say that she was she came into existence not long after the goddess Bastet had left the, I don't know, you call it the material plane or whatever. Sure. But the, when the goddess Bastet left, then this queen goddess came about and they become kings and queens through something that you guys haven't figured out yet. And I've, I've hinted at something related to this, this temple. And yes, the hieroglyphs all told the story about how the Pharaoh Cobal, and, and I've switched up names in this to try to confuse people so that they, would, they wouldn't go and reference material that's online. Sure, as you should. So how he became, became a god king. But there was something else that was going on. And here's the funny thing too. When you guys entered this room, I was excited to get to get you to that point, but I was also surprised too. And and this is one of those things that as a GM, you're often surprised and you, you wonder, do I push the players to go a little bit more in this direction? And you eventually did. So I don't mind talking about it. 
which was I expected you guys like after I, I told you about after you opened this door from the, the backside of this door. So not having approached it from the front and seeing the mystery of the front at the beginning, you came in from behind. And so I was like, okay, how do I present this door? So I presented this door and I expected you guys to do more investigation around it. And you didn't. <laughs> you guys started walking down the hallway right away. <laughs> or at least the, the new guy, Caitlin, Caitlin did. Yeah. And so you guys started following him. And then something interesting happened. And I think it happened to you first. Yeah. So you're talking about back behind near the cyclorama, right? Yep. Okay. So yeah. So I, I started to see these symbols. And what we came to find out is that I was seeing the symbols all along the cyclorama. But interestingly enough, the other characters were seeing other sort of symbols yep and that, that was fun because what i wanted to do was if if and it made sense to me with what was going on with elbrum and with silhouette and with his plot line something was going to something was going to happen to to kind of give more incentive and this whole pyramid thing and the calling that he felt to go into this pyramid would be related to him wanting to be more pay attention to his backstory yeah and here here's the funny thing too in fact there was a bunch of other stuff that I thought would really tie into your backstory, but you you guys did bite bite into it. And I've tried off and on at, at putting in little subtle hints, but th this is the thing. There's these, these idea of trying to set up three clues or three things that a person can find for every mystery so that they can try to solve it. Hmm. And I, I try to do something like that. I, I don't think I flush things out to the point where I'm like, okay, here's... I want the player to go here, and so here's three ways that they can learn this. I, I don't specifically get to that point, but I try to subtly, whenever I, I'm storytelling, I'm, I'm always thinking about your guys' backstories and about how can this be something that gets tied into to your guys' plot. And so when we, when we got into this tune, there was a couple of things that tied to your specific backstory as being a knoll from who who's originally from a tribe in Dabu, and yes, your tribe had been hit by the Tuscalian, so you too became a refugee in Pervastet. And when we first created your, your character, we also talked about how you had some, I don't know if I want to say potions from the Pool of Sky, yep, but you pool, had some yep. water from the Pool of Sky mm -hmm. and that you drank it. And then you had this vision, which eventually led you to connect with yes. the rest of the party and become a member. Right. So I had some ideas of stuff to be inside this tomb that would tie back into your character's backstory. You guys never did uncover it, and so I'm not really going to get into sure, what it sure. was. And it, it's one of those things where you try not to force feed, or at least I try not to force feed uh, things that I, I expect or hope that you guys see. If you, I try to put stuff down, and if you find it, you find it. If you don't, you don't. No, that's better. And it's way better that way. Because it's, it's, when you uncover it, it's way more fun. It's way more interesting because y it wasn't where the GM says, you should really investigate this floor. No, it's that we, we really found it on our own. And there's so much more power. I mean, think yep. of all the best books you've ever read. Uh, there's some great author who weaves together multiple stories. And, you know, some of them may cross paths again. But it, it, doesn't, ha it doesn't have to be that they all come together, right? Yep. Yep. And that's the way I look at it is there's the overall arching plot, which is the Tuscali and what the Tuscali are doing. And yes, they've they've invaded all these people. You guys have all become refugees. And even with a new character, I tied. So getting him into the, the story, I had to tie somehow him to get into the Tuscali. And 
I'm actually really glad that he came in when he did because it it provided me with something to to do more with the Tuscali that I didn't have available before with where he wanted to go with his backstory. Mm. And so it basically means you've got this, which is your overarching story. The things that you guys do to get you from where you are now to eventually meeting or, or solving some of the mystery behind this, I have no idea. There's no way <laughs> to plan that out. Like even this pyramid, it, it was a... Originally, I had no intention for you guys to go here. Originally, it was just a... Elbrum had this tendency to be the last man on watch. He would always want to be the guy who was there before sunrise. And there was a reason for this. And so at one point, I remember he was doing he was doing this and I was trying to do a little bit of description. And then just for the sake of it, I, I threw in the whole story about the city Anuasir and he felt the pull coming from there. Not really thinking anything about it any more than that. And then... Hmm when you guys were deciding on where to go and he convinced you guys to go to Anuasir, I was just like, oh crap, we're doing that then, huh? <laughs> that's when you, you, you got to develop those other plots. So that's fine. I don't mind that. I mean, to me, it makes it hopefully a more organic story for you guys. The best I can do is throw encounters in place and try to eventually get you guys to the the very the end. But do you guys ever get there? Oh, that's yeah, you, maybe. Really. We've got so many lines right now. But I, I think to your comment, yep. that's part of the fun. And that makes it fun for you to, to keep you on your, your your toes. And, you know, if we can oh, for sure. we can take you back because we said, you know what? We're going to be clever and uh, hire this ship and do two things at once. Well, maybe that yep. was unexpected, right? Totally unexpected. And even, even with this, the hiring of the ship, because... I know you guys, uh, he'd been given this stuff and you guys were thinking that the, the growling sanctuary, you guys are like, okay, this is killing us. We can't go back there again. We've got to do something else to, to uh, basically get more experience before, before we return. Or at least this is what I think. Because you guys had the conversation. You left after right. Calidus nearly died. And you guys hadn't returned and you were discussing what to do. And you knew that there'd been somewhat of a quest that the pallet court had given you. But they, they'd said, well, we know what you're doing and... We understand. And so they basically said, when you have time, really, but we need you to solve this before a couple of weeks. So they said that they would provide you access with the sand ship and stuff like this. And it's just, to me, it's just, you lay down tools uh, or, or possibilities, and then you guys just choose which direction you guys want to go. As best as I can, I throw stuff out and then just, all right, if they're going to go in that direction. Okay, session ends. Let's let's see. I got time to think about what I need to do. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was pretty cool. So, you guys were looking at the wall, and you started to seeing something. And so, what I in, did here was, I was reading through some of the Cobalt Press media related to the. So, the Southlands is part of the Mid Midgard campaign. They're both settings that basically take Europe and turn it into a magic realm and Africa and turn Africa into a, a magic realm. They both have the same basis. And so they tend to set out a few books with regard to different things about the, the settings. And I was reading through some of them the other day, and I was just like, oh, this would make so much sense to tie this to what was going on with Elbrum. And I was like, and then I could add this, and this would really try to facilitate a few things that was going on. So what you guys seen was you started to see a rune. Yeah. And each of you started to see a rune. And the, the, the whole idea is because with, with Elbrum, 
starting to get uh, the ability to see ley lines, there needed to be something else that, that you guys also got from that. Th that was my thinking, gotcha. and that's why I was like, this is the perfect place to... So all of a sudden, you guys got a, a new a new feat that you didn't have to plan for or a new ability that you guys didn't have to say, yeah. oh, I'm, as a character, out of character, I want to add this, and next time I get to this level, I'm going to do this instead of this. So because normally, when you get to level four, you can choose to increase your ability statistics or you can choose a feat. Right. Yeah. So in this case, you guys had already, you know, because we're doing experience points through passing milestones, you guys normally, well, I, I don't think anybody actually even mentioned the possibility of choosing a feat. I think everybody just went for stat increases. But I, I just was thinking that, oh, with what Elbrum is doing here, this this would be good to get him to where I need him to go. Right. So I thought, okay, this would be good. So I had to balance it out, make sure that everybody else got something. And when I was looking, well, you know about Calidus's Verlstone. And I thought about going somewhere down the lines of what that Verlstone was about. And in fact, I, I tried to seed some stuff into the story about the Verlstone. I don't know if you, if that was a session where you were missing. No, no, yeah, you were there. Because so this was with the... The cat, the Nakosi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was really good because I, I love the idea that these were creatures that were trapped for thousands of years. And so they knew what Verlstone was. Isn't that interesting, right? Or at least they knew a lot more than you guys did. And I'll share with you from my character's perspective. Of course. I don't know much about the Brillstone. No. I, for, I don't know anything except what I see. I see that sometimes it seems to arbitrarily give a magic power that benefits, and sometimes it arbitrarily gives a magic power that hinders. And that's all I see. That's all I know. So <laughs> to see that the Nikosi understand something, it must be thousands of years old, and it must have a very powerful pull. Yep, and, and 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 this is the thing. So I I considered potentially adding something about the Vril Stone because the Vril Stone really was there was the Barbarian Asher and the finding of the Vril Stone again that was really arbitrary. You know there was at first I when I first thought about it I was like there I was going to put just some rocks with runes on them inside the, that warehouse and that that was found and really it was only going to be if if someone investigated they'd find it and. I don't know, it was, it was accidentally that I read something about the Vril, and I was like, oh, that would be neat. And so I decided <laughs> that it's going to become part of the Vril Stone. And then it became a good way to get you guys to go to somewhere else in Africa in order to chase up a story related to the barbarian's plot of the Black Sultan who killed his parents. Mm. It was originally that, but later on, as <laughs> it's become Calidus's, what do you call it? Like, Pet? <laughs> Yeah, pet or or what? What do this team when a team has one of these mascot. things? Mascot, mascot. It's yeah. become his mascot, really. Yeah. Regardless of the fact, like he clearly knows that how many times is it basically put him unconscious and someone <laughs> had to, to to heal him, otherwise he would die. Well, I was I was sharing in last session. I'll share again. I think if we had to have a bar chart of the KOs in our team, Calidus by far is double everyone else. Oh, for sure, and it just it, and the funny thing is too, as as the wizard in the group, he is always out front. Yeah. <laughs> he's got no armor, and... <laughs> but he's always well. This let's go. This let's session go. we're talking about right now, he uncovered the trap because why? Because he was whistling yeah. and skipping up ahead. <laughs> it, well, yeah, and the thing is too is that the other trap where that dropped all the sand on you guys, that was him too, because like he kicked the <laughs> right. the flail head across the floor thinking that, okay, that, that would have triggered any trap. And I was just like, how much does a flail head weigh? Yep. Does it weigh 10 pounds? 
Yeah, that's that's not going to be enough to trigger anything. And then he just walks in, and then oh, yep, you triggered the trap. So yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. And uh, there, he he does try. He does his best. He really does his best. Where he uh, he wants to be in character, and so he that's what he's doing. Yep. And the funny thing is too is it's 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 interesting to watch as a character grows as he becomes more proficient in his class and understands his character better. So as the player and the character relationship grow, because at the beginning when he wrote his backstory, it seemed like Calidus was kind of like a little bit of a of a buffoon. He didn't like being someone that was considered intelligent and stuff like this, and he had trouble dealing with his intelligence. Mm. But that's not the Calidus that we know anymore. And I think most of your podcast listeners have heard that Calidus had tended towards strong characters previously. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, he, he, he definitely like, cause coming back into D and D being a fighter for the first time as a player, well, that's just easy, right? You just need to know how to swing a sword. And in terms of role playing again, it, it's fairly, fairly easy because you can take a back role in terms of, do you let the other people do all the talking for you? But that could be, a way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is, you know, when you, as a player and you're part of a group and if you recognize that your group isn't very well at problem solving, right. whereas you are, but you're playing someone stupid, you've really got to think, okay, well, what do I need to do? How do I need to do something in a role-playing fashion that is in character and yet gives everybody else a hint to do something? Right. And, and this is the thing too, is for me, playing stupid and playing intelligent that's tough for anybody who's role playing because playing stupid, you can make your voice sound dumb, but and that's just a stereotype. Right. But it doesn't really mean role playing. How do you play dumb and or how do you role play playing intelligent? And to me, that's where your skill checks yeah. come. And, and I've never really had this happen to me, but I I can just imagine you know you're you're playing a low intelligent character and you've solved the puzzle, but your teammates haven't. And you, so how do you how do you play that? Do you you can't just say, oh, I've solved the puzzle because that wouldn't be in character, right? So yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. I don't have the answer for that either. It, I, I find playing dumb is really, really, really challenging because, you know, you do have a thing and you want to, you, you want to impart what you do. But, and, and this is where the, that troll, he was always like, well, you're playing stupid. And so he would say, well, you would, he would often say, well, you're too dumb to know that, right? And so what he would always do, any character that he chose, he clearly knew about in character, out of character, intelligence. And so I played with him in at least three things where he had three different characters and not for once did he did he decide on using a character that was dumb. And I get the feeling now that that's because he doesn't know how to play dumb, mm. but he sure as hell had a lot of fun telling everybody else when they weren't playing dumb enough. Yeah. So how do you do it? Ooh, that's, that's a, good, a good, question. good question. Like you've solved, yeah, you've solved the, the, the trick. How do you, how do you, help convince your other players to use their skills in order to solve something that you've solved yourself. And, and you know what, this, this is a, this is a really good tie in because in some of your early sessions in the podcast, you talked about what makes a good team and a good dungeon master and what makes that synergy, right? Well, I think part of that is when do you know the appropriate time to do checks and when do you know the appropriate time to help solve something yourself? And when do you know the appropriate time to to give a hint or some sort of beneficial information or nudge to your party members who could then solve it? Yeah. And well, it, and this is the interesting thing, too, because like with what happened with us, 
eventually you guys needed to deal with the obelisk. Yes. And I knew that you guys had figured out enough that you had all the tools in there. So I was not about to put any more checks in front of you guys to, to solve anything more because I really felt that you guys, you were just like on the cusp. You're so, so close. Yeah, we had all four pieces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You had you had all the pieces in bo with both the puzzles. And I was so, so happy when you guys solved them. So, so happy because I've been waiting and waiting, waiting for that last room to happen. But in some cases, you, you do push. But it was very clear to me that you guys were all clued in enough that you had the puzzle pieces and you were just figuring out that last bit. So if, if you guys would have struggled, I would have done things like, I don't know, insight or history sure. or, or something that would give you a little bit more of a nudge. But you guys had everything there, so I didn't feel that I needed to. I just waited. And the thing is, is if it was really, if, if you guys were really struggling and say, and I knew that in last session that you guys had to solve this because one more session without solving or getting into that last room could be debilitating in some ways because you, you do need to make the story go along right. and you can't, you want people to be invested and be invested in the story, invested in their character. But at the same time, the story has to progress into something that they feel like they're achieving. Right. I mean, I love stories and I love being involved in stories, but if the story's going nowhere at one point, you're like, yeah, no, like I was in another session with Mick and he got this cursed object. He, 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 we were at this bar. All of a sudden, he was married, and he had this axe that he just wouldn't get rid of. And I, I thought this was this cursed item with a that came with a wife was such a good story that could happen from this. <laughs> but it very clearly went nowhere mm. within the next few sessions. And it, it, that was at the point where Mick and I were like, "Yeah, I mean, Mick had a blast playing up being cursed and what that meant when it came down to encounters." Which is fun, right? I think if you if you're cursed to play it up, but the story wasn't going anywhere, and it's just like at the end of the day, you're like, oh well. There were no tie-ins. There, there was nothing to lead it in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was just it didn't keep you invested in it. It was just to discover what was going on there, and then eventually we fought one of each elemental, and after we finished the last elemental and left, the story was over, and it was like, that's it. <laughs> How? Included. What did we do? How did we? Uh, it, it didn't. It didn't tie up anything for us. Look, you know, you, you, it's not about trying to insult other GMs or anything like this. Some like narrative. Some don't. And there's right. different styles. For me, as a player and as a GM, narrative, it's the more important thing. And and I think it ultimately with the elves leaving, it was because narrative wasn't the kind of game they wanted to play in. Right. So, but yeah, for me. If it's going somewhere, and this is why I knew in my mind, I was like, they need to be able to solve it this time. And if, if I seen that you guys weren't actually getting there, I probably would have jumped in okay. and used a couple of other checks to, to get you guys thinking in the right way. But you guys didn't need it. Well, we solved it. Round of applause to us. Round of applause. I, I, will, I will share with the podcast listeners. We don't always solve it. <laughs> No, but, and I have to admit too, that like, I remember when I shared the text that was written on the second key, I was looking at the wrong thing. And I said, it says, I think it was in or in Catfolk. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it was supposed to say strength is second, but I thought in my mind, I read the wrong thing. And I said, it said visibility. 
<laughs> which had nothing at all to do with it. That was like a fantasy ground interface thing where I just wasn't paying attention to what I was looking at. And I was like, oof, yeah. And of course, Elmer no was like, oh, that makes so much more sense. And of course, I know he was shitting with me. But anyways, still, <laughs> eventually when you guys did get to that second mystery and you had to solve the keys, I, I did facilitate not so you guys didn't have to go through all of your notes to re remember each of the little bits that you'd found. And then I just refreshed your memory and put it all on the chat screen so you yeah. could see all of it at one time. That was yeah, and it does. I mean, I, I don't mind doing that because the point is, is you guys would eventually have dug it up from where you were. And in real life, I don't, we don't need to waste time while you're digging up information that you might've put in your notes somewhere. Sure. So, yep. So threw that up all in, all on a chat screen, each one of the, the different messages that you found and you figured it out. And, and to be honest, that you guys solved the obelisk actually surprised me. I was expecting you guys, so, sorry, not surprised me, but I figured that you guys would eventually figure out that you needed to hold the plates, the discs, onto the, the, the obelisk. Okay. But the order. Because, well, I, I didn't actually expect you guys to get the order right. Because the symbols on the obelisk compared with the symbols on the discs, I was like, how do you guys see the relationship there? Because I'm sitting there thinking, how is a lion related to the falcon-headed spearman? I, I just, in my mind, I don't see the relationship. But that you guys did, I was just like, that's impressive. Or or that the scarab, I know I've mentioned the scarab a few times about the, the scarab of rebirth and stuff like this, and that you equated that to being the guy who's ripped open his sternum. I was just like, damn, I don't see that either. I have no idea. Like, I, I know where things are supposed to go, but just me as a, a person outside of the story seeing that relationship, yeah, I don't see it. Didn't see it. Mm. Couldn't couldn't figure out how the writer was tying this stuff together. Yeah, I, I think part of that part of that was you helping with the description, but I think part of that too was we divided and conquered that problem. We took our oh, four yeah. people that we had and we said, okay, well, if you have this one, which one do you need to hold it up to? And we let each person try to help solve the problem together. It wasn't just one person. It wasn't a one-party show. We all yeah. worked together to yeah. that one. Yeah, and that, that's true too because like at, at one point it was just the process of elimination. It was just like, okay, so where does the fish go? Well, I mean, there's right. only other one spot that seemed logical. And to me, th that's the funny thing because like when I was looking at that problem as Stacy and I was just like, okay, fish, water, the guy's got the jug. Okay, jug pouring water. Yeah, okay, that makes sense to me. Those two would be tied. And then there was the other one, the guy that had the, the wounds. I, I think at one point, Nagwa, she had said something about the snakes and the, the room where the trap door was with the, the strange circular floor and the, the pitted floor. And say, she said that it was from acid and stuff like this, that, that there was a relationship between the person with this, the, the bites on his arm being snake bites. Right. And I think someone medicine checked and figured out that they were snake bites as well. So snake bite guy with snake, right. those seem to be logical things to tie together. The and other now stuff, we have one like, of the four. Yeah, the, the scarab and the, the, the lion, though, that, that was just like, how are those? But anyways, yeah, processes of elimination, the four of you guys going there. And I was just, this was just great. I was like, obelisk solved, cool. And so you guys got that stuff. And we got a, we got a dagger. Yep. Got the dagger, got the third key, and with the third key, you guys were then able to open the door. And I considered having big consequences to getting the door wrong, but yeah, I was just like, okay, you, you got the 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 sequence not quite right. 
So things just got frozen temporarily. Yeah. Thank you for not killing us all when. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there's there's times when that stuff makes sense, and when you guys got into that hallway where the skeletons were, if you guys had handled it any other way than what you did, it's this, it's the same thing with with activating the bloody Nikosi, making the Nikosi come to life. There's only two ways they would have come to life. First way mm. would have been if you started pouring water onto the scarabs that were was where the Minotaur was trapped. And if you got that combination wrong, you would have activated the statues. Or if you physically started messing with the statues themselves. And that's what we did. And so Elbrum climbed on a statue. And I was just like, well, that's the trigger. Okay, statues come to life. There are certain things where... If you trigger it, you guys just need to have to solve to, to deal with it. And if, in fact, in the Growling Sanctuary, that happened quite a bit. There's evil creatures all over the place there, and there's just no escaping them. And I mean, you guys have gotten knocked down quite a few times, but you've managed to get away. And, and that's that's one of the things too. I also realized that I'm less inclined to, and I, I, I broke this rule on our session to have an NPC get involved. And I really thought that at the end of the day, what I should have had Nagwa and Rackham do was stay outside the room and just let you guys deal with it. Because having the NPCs there, it does change the battle. And Yeah, it's slightly in our favor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. It does make it more more easier for you when you've got a, a, another set. And the thing is, is those NPCs are there originally like Onka. My, my thought was that if you guys did wrong things, you guys would end up having a fighter with, with Onka and Richard, uh, the were-crocodiles. Right. And the same thing with Rackham and Agua. If you guys handled that wrong, there'd be a fight there. So they're challenging enough that they would be a challenge for you guys. But having them involved in other fights where they're working as allies, that's my mistake. I've got to get better on, nope, <laughs> hirelings or NPCs <laughs> no are not going to fight on your behalf. So, But I, I'll comment that that's like that's our entire strategy, right? And so our strategy will be how can we find every last ally we can get in these <laughs> in the world, right? Because the more allies you have, and and uh, this is something I heard Mick talk about earlier on, right? I yep. totally agree. The more people you have in your corner as you face a dungeon or as you face a a, a city, the yep. better. Yep, yep. But I, I think. For me, if if I'm going to do that in the future, I think what I got to really get better at is quickly scaling down uh, hireling NPCs so that they are not deciding things in your favor. Gotcha. So Rackham all of a sudden being able to throw shatters about and obliterate skeletons right, right. was too much in your guys' favor. It makes it it makes it less of a challenge for you guys from an encounter basis, which. That's not quite right because it's, it, it does have to be up to you guys. And yes, I understand getting allies is good. Yep. And I think from that point, I probably should be, if you guys have obtained NPC allies, that I just hand them over to you guys and you guys decide on what they're going to do. And, and beforehand, I just have ready to scale them down so that they're not deciding from your point of view. Sure. And that makes sense. You just, you just nerf them a little bit and you, and, uh, or you just say, Hey, I'm going to sit out this battle, but maybe I'll give you some sort of benefit or some sort of buff or maybe some tools, yeah. lock picking or whatever. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when you opened up this chamber, I think I surprised all of you guys. Cause if you had been listening to the podcasts, you might've been expecting something completely different to be in this chamber. 
Yes. <laughs> and I'm guilty of that. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun switching that one up. And I had that switched up before you guys ever even, when you guys decided to go into the pyramid, I'd been thinking about, okay, what is, what's going to happen here? And like, what, what is going to be the, the big bad evil boss inside this pyramid? And I was just, and at that point you could have eventually decided that you're going to go and fight Hate. You could have, but you guys seem to be more diplomatic. So it, it turned out the way it did, but I, I certainly had a, a fun just saying, nope, what came out of that sarcophagus was not going to be a mummy. Yeah, we all expected it. But I still did have a mummy in the room too. So eventually when you guys did face it, you guys did face one that was tough. And Kalen, I, I was surprised. I didn't actually look to see how many hit points Kalen had. But eventually that, that, that thing did smush him. Well, he's, now he's cursed now. He's got the, a curse that he's going to need to get solved. But he didn't die. I, I, because when, we, we, when you guys encountered one of the sisters in the streets, I think she killed one of you guys too, didn't she? I don't recall, but she did some it damage. Was you, when you guys, it was you oh, Elgin, yeah, it was and Saber. Saber who was fighting. Yeah, you KO'd Saber, yeah. I think, I, think she, I think she killed you, didn't she? Um, maybe, but it was, Saber was also down for the count because I remember that I left him and I... <laughs> And I was trying to do the finishing blow. This was some sessions ago, but yep. <laughs> afterwards, I got some kind advice that, you know, you should also watch the people who are on the ground writhing and slowly starting to turn white. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay, got to remember your party. The, the more you have, the, the, when, a, when a person falls down, I know it's always like, I get, I'll get the killing stroke, I'll get the killing stroke. But the, the other thing, the other bit of logic that you, that you got to always think about is, or I always think about as a player is if I heal that person so they're up and around again, then perhaps the enemy will continue to look at them instead of looking at me. Right, right. <laughs> so it, to me, it's it's a survival mechanism. So as a yep. healer, yeah, heal everybody you can so that uh, you got a better chance of walking away. But yep. but the the point was the the those mummies have massive mass when they punch. Th so this mummy was slightly different from the mummies that you guys had faced before or the mummy you faced before, because the mummy you faced before had a massive punch. This one still had a massive punch, but there was a curse tied to it as well. I think the the mummies before had Rotting Fist. They had it before? Yeah, they had Rotting Fist, because you, you, that's right, we, we talked about it. And we just got learned, lucky. Yeah, you'd learned very specifically the nature of their punches and stuff like this. And I think there was actually a curse as well with regular mummies, but there was something slightly different with this curse. I, I, I thought, anyways. But yeah, Kalen got smashed. He, he, he managed to, to take it like a champ. And here again, this is where I had Nagua healing you guys up and stuff like that, which I think helped a lot. And yeah. he got cursed from that, but eventually he did manage to hit the mummy a couple of times with his searing smite, which did fire damage. And yes. that had... I, I don't think I did a very good job of explaining what that actually meant when he hit the mummy like that, which I probably should have. Because this is one of those things where, as a GM, explaining how those hits have effect ought to give you more insight into, if I meet another creature like that, this is how I'm better prepared to handle that creature. Sure. Do you know that a stake through the heart of a vampire is going to kill a vampire? From common knowledge, sure. you might have heard things about stakes and vampires, but until you've actually experienced, you don't actually know. Right? Right. So that that's right. what it's supposed to be about, isn't it? 
you don't actually know what their vulnerabilities are or anything like this until you've actually done something. And that, that, that relies on me also making sure I explain very well what happens when, when hits happen. Okay, well, tell me. I could, I could know the secret info. You could tell me the secret info alone. So, <laughs> so when you strike through a sword through the mummy, what does it look like? That's, yeah, and that's, and that's just it. You know, this is why I think I turned off the business of you guys knowing whether or not you hit because I wanted to have time to narrate a little bit more about the hit. And I guess that's too because I, I can't say that I always watch Critical Role from front to back because four hours is just a lot. So I catch piecemeal here and there. I listen to some of it on podcasts. And what I always liked about what Matt Mercer does is he narrates quite a bit about what happens with, with the damage. And I think that's kind of neat. It just adds a little bit more, it, or at least it, it tweaks my imagination more of more than just, well, you hit it. I'm glad you do that. I like it. Yep. You smashed into him. Busted off his jaw so he can't yell insults at you more anymore. And so the vicious mockery doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But before that though, you guys entered the chamber and what happened when you entered the chamber? Okay. So, so the first thing we saw was this, giant room it was a huge open room and right in the middle was a sarcophagi just one i guess it was just one sarcophagus and interestingly there wasn't a lot in the room we saw that maybe there was something on the far side behind the sarcophagus there was a some sort of hand and there were two well here's a word i don't say often if i get it wrong it's uh, uh some ladies apparel is it a brazer <laughs> yeah, I get, I get that wrong too. Brazier versus brazier. Brazier, brazier. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. uh, so there were two braziers, but other than that, we didn't see a lot in the room. So yep. So what we did, we all walked in very carefully. I, I will tell you, we have a cautious bunch, which is good. <laughs> so we all walked in uh, very cautiously. But as soon as we got a few steps in, here's where the magic happened. What Dagobah was mentioning a few minutes ago, out from the sarcophagus. We all expected maybe a mummy, some undead. No, we started to see some some blooms and some leaves. And then it just overtook and overflowed like some sort of water coming out of this sarcophagus. But it was greenery and it was leaves. And it spread across this circular room. And it just spread and spread. And very quickly, matter of a few seconds, now we're in a full-fledged illusion. And it's a lush forest with a brook and a little a little bridge and there were some there were trees and we were just engulfed into another vision entirely yep and that was fun because i the thing that i i realized about certain things that happen there are two choices you can do as a gm you could let the players roll about and 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 then alter what is going to happen in that thing or you can just assume it's a cutscene. And this is the thing, uh, this is the trick. A lot of times you could go too far in the encounter of letting characters try to change this about what the outcome here. And to me, it's just so much better that don't let that happen. Don't get bogged down in encounters and initiative and roles. This is a cutscene, So this just mm. happens. And if it's not directly going to lead to the player's death, just let it unroll and unravel and let them see what they're going to see and then after they see it then it's up to them and so i i had fun i had fun painting that scene and then instead of being a sarcophagus there there was a gazebo yep it was a gazebo 
I thought that was great. And and of course, Araki's first thing, instead of walking over the bridge, so just in your mind's eye, we are on the other side of the bridge and there's a gazebo on the far side. So we need to cross over the gaze the bridge. And so what does Araki do? Walks through the well, water. Is, is this really an illusion? So walks yep. through the water. Yep. And I did have you roll because I did expect that there was a possibility that some of you guys might want to roll. And I, I did let that happen to see if you could see that it was an illusion. But at this point, because this has already happened, I don't mind sharing. Yeah, you, you basically needed to have rolled a 30, which is the hardest roll you can in order to break that illusion because it was exceedingly strong. And there was a reason why it was exceedingly strong. And I don't know if you guys picked it up, so I'm not going to say. That's Yeah, that's fine. So from my perspective, she must be some strong, some strong wizardress. Or something. And then she so, started talking to you guys. And I had so fun because I, I yeah. sat long and hard thinking about the voice for this woman. And I hope I did her justice. I, I don't know. No, I think you did. She was she was first called a lovely lass. So we went up and talked to the lovely lass. Yes. And actually, Elbram, Elbram took the lead here. He was speaking on our behalf. But, uh, but I think there's for good reason here. Yep. You guys came up to her and she started... The way I described it is I, I think I said that she smelled something about you guys. Yes. She smelled the pixie. The words I chose, and this will be interesting to see. I, actually, I'm curious. To, can you remember what words I said? Because, in fact, the words were actually really quite important. Oh, let's see. So she smelled all of us, and then she smelled Elbram. But she, I, I think she moved right to the pixie i think she seemed to recognize elbram but especially the fey pixie i love to hear this because what this tells me is that the very first few things that she said if you don't remember them they were just I as important it. as the pixie thing so Ugh. this is just awesome <laughs> you can't remember that's cool i'm usually pretty good at catching the things but i i was taken aback by the lush forest perhaps yep but yes, she did. She she, she it, it ultimately uh, she said a few things there about what she smelled, but she did ultimately focus on the pixie. So I'm curious, what do you think? So having heard that, what did you think you learned about it? Well, I've got to I've got to be a little honest. I did. I was so confused at, with this encounter. So I don't know if that tells anything about me as a no no getting easily confused. But so I'll tell you that. The one thing that I learned was Cabal is in 2017, which yep. is the year in our game, Cabal is seemingly alive, yep. but he's gone. He's, he's, not, he's not around where we were looking, yep. which is totally different than the thought that we had. Yep. Going to go in there and fight Cabal. Yep. And that, that, was, that was what I hoped to get you guys to think too, uh, especially with, with the backstory that I give to the Minotaur as well. So it's too bad yeah. that he wasn't able to play and he, he, he missed out. There was that that Cobal's been walking around for quite some time. So here's the question. Has he achieved his God King status? And that's what we don't know, right? Because the way that he comes back to life, well, it was written that when he came back, he would be this huge power. And is that what he's become? Is he alive, actually? There's so many questions. And you guys did learn that some of his objects of power were still in the pyramid and two of the three were still in a pyramid. So then it becomes what's going to happen with that. But it's actually going to be interesting for me to wait until next week to hear 
player story from I, I want to hear what Elbrum has to say because I want to hear what his taking was on meeting Hattay and the whole conversation with Silhouette and stuff like this because it all ties that all ties back into his backstory so be interesting to see what he his perspective on what he heard because I mean it makes sense to yeah. me that that when the, the you guys are in the pyramid of Cobal you're not really clear on Elbrum's backstory or what any of the stuff that might mean so focusing on Cobal and the message of what happened with Cobal would be relevant to you. So that was good. It was really good. Well, yeah. And, and I'll, sh I'll share with you, I mean, from, from Oraki's standpoint, she's a knoll and she's, she's clever. But uh, So she sees that Elbrum recognizes these ley lines, right? And the ley lines intersect at this point. And yeah. so there's power here. And Elbrum recognizes this power. And then we see that, what's her name? Hate? We meet Hate and and Hate recognizes Elbrum and and they recognize each other or seemingly have a conversation and maybe that conversation was interesting too because I imagined Oraki looking from Elbrum back to back to Hate and back to Elbrum and there were there were moments in that conversation where Elbrum would just take a second to process and ponder what oh, was yeah. just being said. Oh yeah. Because this is very important, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I was kind of worried too, because in those pauses, I was just like, have I completely overwhelmed these guys that they don't know what to ask, <laughs> what to say, what to do. So there was, there was a number of pauses and I was just like, huh? So I, I, I did try to fill a little bit of the dead space there with some stuff, more sure. little bits of extras that she had. Cause I, I was a little bit concerned that you guys were like, I threw in an element that you was very unexpected and you didn't know how to deal with it. Well, there's a lot of truth to that as well, you know, because we have so many thoughts going through our heads and how would the character react? And, yeah. and it, I think this was, this was appropriate to let, to let Elbrum lead and, uh, and have that conversation. Yep. And what was interesting that I noticed too, is without Mick being there as Calidus, cause it's very often when you guys are there, he'll be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to huddle and talk. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that bit was missing well, which is, well it's cool because you know I, I always thought that that's interesting when you guys uh do do that with the, the npcs and it's like yeah wait a minute yeah okay we understand you're there you're big big cheese and stuff but we still need to talk so <laughs> but yeah well so it was good i, I really enjoyed that. that when you mentioned the huddle and talk one thing i'm concerned about is um so you do a really good job Dagobah, of of making it seem like there's a finiteness to a lot of these encounters. And this one particularly, it seemed as though she was giving the indication and air that she had somewhere to be. So yep. we felt as though we only had so many sentences of interaction with her. And so yep. there was some urgency and that we didn't have time to huddle. You know what I mean? Did, did, you, did, did anything that she say give you any clues as to why she, she was, had that urgency? Well, I I I don't, I I'm sure I missed some of this, but I thought maybe she was she had to fulfill something, or maybe she had to go die, or maybe she had to disappear. I yeah. I, I missed it. Yeah, I got I have to wonder if Elbrum missed it as well, because again, it's one of those things. You know, you like I when I do the cutscene and stuff like this, there there are certain bits of dialogue that I want to get out, and when I'm thinking about that, it's not that I'm trying to put like the 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 whole things with the three keys in dialogue that people say. I'm not trying to be obtuse right. with the dialogue. 
But that's the funny thing that I've noticed when, when you do this stuff is that you guys catch quite a bit and you miss quite a bit. And <laughs> well, it, it, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's so much, much more improved out of the other, other session and, and how much you guys get. And there'll be times when all of a sudden, like, you'll say something that'll be like, oh, Jesus, I completely forgot about that. But yeah, that makes sense there. And then I've got to, then I've got to scramble and try to figure out how to, how to deal with something that you guys have remembered, but I've forgotten. So <laughs> at the moment, it's, it's one of those things where the conversation is there. How, how well did it saturate within you guys? Time will tell. Yeah. I, I felt it's interesting because having a good session and I feel we have a good session. Yeah. I, I, I will end the session and I'll think to myself, we should have asked her these questions. You know, we should have done this. <laughs> and that happened. And that happened. And one of the things I felt that we should have asked her later on, well, how about this? If we need to speak to you again, where or how can we get a hold of you? We never asked that. So yeah, it's a good one. she's gone. It's a good one. Yep. yep. And I, I, and then it would have been, I, here's my answer. Oh, yeah, go speak with Astra at the Jubilant Nargile. You can get a hold of me there. Because she's been the de facto message courier for for the gray company <laughs> over over the time, and I don't know if you were around at the at the very beginning at how many times it was like, oh yeah, go go, go to the jubilant Nargile. we'll do everything there. You're probably hear about it in some of the, the the yeah yeah right. I guess I probably should give the the players a little bit of a, a history that okay, so Oraki, so Jacob who plays Oraki, did not start was not one of the original starters of this campaign. We had the two elves. And the elves ended up leaving in Oraki, as well as another player whose name was Saber. They came in to replace the two elves. So that was probably, oh, I don't know, is it like eight, nine, ten episodes ago? Oh boy, I think it was. It's probably December. Yeah. Yeah, because it was just at when it was before you guys went into the Growling Sanctuary. Uh, were you you were there too when they went to the to the the big library, right? No, I was not in the library. I think it, maybe it was oh, right after yes. the library because right. I was there at the tent. I knocked at the tent. Right. Because it was just after one session where they they went to the mortuary. Yeah, you came in after the mortuary because the elves were involved in the mortuary because they, they bungled up that one pretty good. Well, it was fun anyways. <laughs> and, I, 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 you know, sort of when I entered, it's it's funny because when I came in, I knew that this was going to be a good group because I said, okay, I knock at the tent and they say, well, how do you knock at a tent? And I yeah. said, oh, okay. Well, I, <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh, they're good. They're on the, on the point. And yeah, it's been, it's been pretty good. So yeah, that you came in there. So you're not uh, fully across a, a lot of the, the uh, other backstories, especially with, with Calidus and Elbrum, but you, you're starting to catch on. This was a particularly good episode. I, I really enjoyed this one, actually, quite a bit. Just because I, I got to introduce Hatte, and I was so interested to see where you guys were going to take that and whether or not you were going to fight. You expected us to fight her. Well, there's always the option that you guys are going to fight. There's always that option. And it's... you As you probably have noticed, because you've been to the Growling Sanctuary, is that I don't actually de-escalate the, the fights. I try to make them as organic as possible, where I try to think of as best as I can. Because, I mean, a lot of the time, some of these, these NPCs, they do have a lot of abilities. And I, it, it does get overwhelming when you're looking, oh, what do I do? What do I do? What should I cast? Because I don't want to sit there and waste a lot, a lot of time about, okay, 
you know, five minutes deciding on what is the move that this creature is going to do. I try to, I try to to keep myself within a one minute per per NPC that you guys have to to what they're going to use. Right. So if they've got this huge list of abilities, I'm just like, yeah, okay, randomly I'll choose that one and then see if it works. Right. Whereas some people might actively be really out for okay, and that's why sometimes you know really easy to use NPCs are so much more. I, I find. If you set, if you've got like a, a ton of of like kobolds, there's they really have nothing for for magic or multi attacks or anything like this. So if you use them the the them right from the monster manual, then you can try to figure out what is my strategy. Where if I've got twenty of these kobolds, how might they survive an encounter? So from a DM's point, if we looking at those and and developing a strategy for them not so difficult to do because they're very simple. So it's just a matter of placement and how do they help each other. Whereas when you've got a, another creature, like say you've got a paladin NPC and they've got all of the paladin abilities, yeah, it becomes a lot more complicated. And it's like, okay, he's going to, oh, I don't know, Divine Smite or Searing Smite or Thunder Smite or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, choosing those options and going through those options takes a little bit more time. Whereas, and, and that's the, and, and I played a cleric. That's even worse. <laughs> well, I mean, see, th- this is the thing. This this is where the fantasy ground interface comes in really, really handy. If, and I think that you know, with clerics and with wizards who have access to more, like I think bards and paladins and sorcerers, they have a finite amount of spells that will only ever show up on their character sheets. Whereas wizards and clerics, like a cleric can have, you can basically put all of the level ones, all the level twos on your character sheet. But each morning, the beginning of the morning, as a player, you tell your DM, okay, I'm going to do my prayers in the morning and I'm going to choose these spells. And then on the character sheet, you just go and click the little round button on the ones that you're going to, you're going to pray for during the day and that'll be your prayers. And then you change the character sheet to combat mode. And that's the only the only spells that you see. So it makes it makes things easier for you. Because if you had to look at all of the level 1s and level 2s and try to remember, I prepared this one, I prepared that one. Yeah, it could be messy. So the character sheet where it allows you to switch to combat mode and just yeah, see the right. ones you've prepared for the day, that 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 minimizes some of the tasks. So it makes things a little bit easier. And, and that's why I, I, I try to get a lot of advocate that a lot of players get in the habit of making sure that on the actions tab of their character sheet, that they are in the combat mode because it tells you this is the weapon that you've got in your hand. And these are the spells that you've got memorized for the day. And when you use them, they disappear and you don't have to think about them in terms of, do I know it or not? I, I think that right. that helps the, that's where the, the interface helps out a lot. No, it certainly does, and that's a that's a fantasy ground pro tip there. Oh yeah, and once yeah, I started yeah, doing sure. that, it was much easier. And it was the same thing with Mick, like, because Mick and I are friends. We we talked about being a wizard and stuff like this. And to be honest, I I hadn't played before I started DMing. I hadn't played for twenty some odd years, and other than remembering that I had the red box, I couldn't remember anything. So we're going over being a wizard, and then once I realized how many spells <laughs> he could get, and that he could find scrolls and write them into his book to increase increase his spell list, I was like, "Ooh, now I'm starting to understand why everybody talks about how the wizard is such a powerful character, and and why it's like probably the most popular class to take." So then Mick started seeing, okay, he he might not have liked it, but at the beginning because it meant he he needed to know more, but he certainly likes it now, and especially because. With the Vril Stone screwing with his spells all the time, he enjoys that. 
it had so much fun. Oh yeah, having things, you know, being cursed or having certain objects like this, for sure, for sure. And I, I, I love the very first time when he went to cast a spell and he had it in his pocket and he thought that it wouldn't have an effect or when he was casting a spell on the group and Elbrum was holding the Vril Stone because he, he didn't want to cast it and have an effect. And now they realize, or at least I hope they're a lot more clued into how the Vril Stone gets triggered. Yeah, I think it's... I won't say any more on it because I hope they have figured it out. Okay. So it's one of those things. It's just, it adds, it adds to your character when you've got something like that. Just one of those flavor items. No, I, I, I totally agree. And uh, yeah. we've accidentally, I think you probably talked about it last session, but we've accidentally KO'd Kalidus a few times because of it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he's KO'd himself numerous times because <laughs> of it. And, and I think, too, like when I was sitting there looking, when I actually was listening to the very first time we talked about the usage of the Vril Stone, he was casting a, a detect magic or something like this. And the way I described it, it exploded out of him and, and everybody could see. So normally with Detect Magic, just the person who casts it can see the magical auras and stuff like this. Right. But when he cast it, there was an explosion of indigo light that came out of him and everybody saw the indigo light. And since then, I've not, I guess, exaggerated the usage of the real stone. And I'm, I'm starting to think, you know, this is why the, listening through these podcasts and remembering stuff that we talked about before is just like, oh, it's it's really enlightening. And it it does actually help me to remind me of things that I need to do within our next sessions to try to keep the flavor up. Well, that's good. Because that's what it's all about, is the narrative for me and trying to keep that flavor up so that you guys are invested. Well, I think we are. That, and I think at that point, we could probably wrap up. So we've kind of, we glossed really quickly over the things that happened in the session, but more or less we got to the end, which was you met with Hate, she disappeared, and you guys ended up fighting some minions. Were they her minions or were they Cobal's minions? You don't know. But we closed the session at that point because at that point we'd actually, normally we close it through the three-hour marker. But clearly you guys were invested in the session because we hit to the four-hour <laughs> marker and Elbrum hadn't fallen asleep. So that was good. Yeah, that's true. Hello, good people of the interwebs. This episode is now done, dusted, and finished. I do hope you enjoyed it, and I'll be back in just one week.